This evening in your Bible, we would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. From that chapter, we'll be reading the first eight verses, but then focusing our attention upon the words of our text in verse 4. In your pew Bible, you can find this selection of Scripture on page 1,262. Again, we continue this evening with an emphasis on missions or evangelism. We use those words virtually synonymously, at least today, uh, missions and evangelism. Uh, Mission, of course, we are to go out with the gospel to the nations, evangelizing or proclaiming the good news, the good news of what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, this evening, uh, we turn our attention to a passage of Scripture uh, that ties into this overarching theme. Acts 8, we read from verses 1 through 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is Stephen. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And again this evening we want to look especially at verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe it's very important for us to, in connection to the work of missions, not just have a view that it's something that others do, over there. Certainly that is part of the work of missions and a part that we as a congregation have the opportunity to participate in, uh, of a mission work done especially underneath the ministerial labors of Reverend Lon Dosery in Quito, Ecuador. We're thankful for the opportunity to engage in that aspect of ministry. But the danger might be that when we think of missions, we think of overseas, uh, of other places, of other people. Maybe even we might think, well, well, yeah, over there, over there they need to hear the gospel. I mean, look how steeped in Roman Catholicism they are. Uh, look at the crucifixes and uh, look at all of the ceremonies associated uh, with perhaps uh, the Virgin Mary or other saints. And, and, and there's this danger that we think, ah, but, but, but here, here in the Western world, here in the heartland of the United States of America, here in Pella, Iowa, well, here, here everyone is a Christian. And maybe not in so many words, but we begin to think, oh yeah, mission work, evangelizing, well, that's something that happens in Quito, Ecuador, or on the coast of our great nation. Or, well, may, maybe that could happen in Des Moines or, or Knoxville. But, but here, I would submit to you tonight that, yes, here, here in our neighborhoods, 
here in our places of employment, here in our extended families, is where God also is calling us to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so having considered this morning what you you could categorize it, that this morning we considered the church as an institution going forth through the ordained ministry, baptizing and teaching, right? We certainly don't expect and we wouldn't want individual persons throughout the week baptizing uh, in their places of work or in their extended families. That is an official sacrament given to the church as an institution. But having considered that work this morning, uh, this evening we want to look a little bit more at the, the church, the gathering of God's people as a living organism as we go out and we live our, so to speak, everyday lives, our Mondays through our Saturdays. And notice that, according to Scripture, that there is also a vital, important work for us to do in that context. The work of what we are going to consider this evening, the evangelistic work of the believer. And that is our theme that we'll consider with three points. First of all, the setting for the work, and then secondly, the activity in the work, and then thirdly, the focus in the work. So our subject matter in Acts 8 verse 4 this evening is the description, but also the commission of the evangelistic work of the believer. We'll notice the setting, and then the activity, and the focus. Uh, Now if you look, and I want to work quite closely with the text this evening, if you look in verse 4, the first word in our English translation is the word therefore. Uh, And it's an old saying, but whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it therefore? And it ties back into the preceding context. And so when we ask ourselves the setting for the work, you know, don't think that in the New Testament era everything was wonderful and that the New Testament church had the opportunity to just sort of live in a time of spiritual utopia uh, where, where everyone would just knock down the doors of the church eager to hear the gospel message. Uh, that certainly was not the case at all because when you look at verse 4, therefore it ties you back to what we read in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. At that time, a great persecution arose. But notice also, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So the description of the setting, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament church finds herself scattered. That is, her her members, her persons, uh, are dispersed throughout the nations as a result of this severe persecution that had come upon especially the Hellenistic segment of the Jerusalem church, Uh, those individuals who were more influenced uh, by Greek culture. You notice that the apostles, uh, those men that we consider this morning, uh, they remain in Jerusalem for the instruction and for the encouragement of the Jerusalem church. Uh, But other individuals uh, and most commentators agree that it's most likely uh, the Hellenistic Jews, they are sent out and they begin to scatter in fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus Christ has said in Acts 1 verse 8. You will be witnesses to me, yes, in Jerusalem, but then in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you'll notice that this is indeed a severe or a great persecution. Perhaps it, it, it met its high water point or its culminating point in the brutal execution of Stephen. But also, Paul's making havoc. Well, at that time, Saul, he's making havoc of the Christian church. And he has a certain amount of political authority behind him. And he's going from house to house and from place to place, uh, arresting Christians. 
And now we might say, well, this context is, is quite foreign from us. We come and we meet in peace and relative ease. And we do, and for that congregation, we ought to be immensely grateful. How often I take that privilege for granted and hardly think anything about it, that the most inconvenient thing for me to come to corporate worship is perhaps the wind that confronts me in my walk from the car to the building. Uh, that's the, the, maybe the, the greatest obstacle that we have. And just pause and think, are we grateful for the freedoms that we have? I've often wondered, as statistics indicate declining church membership, if there was a threat of persons coming in here and arresting us this evening, how many of us would have shown up? Would you be here if you had to continually glance over the back of your shoulder to see if the Pella police were coming uh, with their handcuffs to carry the leaders out? Uh, some historians say that the practice of the church leaders, the consistory meeting together before the service, uh, came about during the times in which the Reformed churches were persecuted. And basically, they gathered together and, and they made a plan. Well, if if the authorities come and break up our meeting, here's where we'll meet next, and here's what we'll do. And if our leaders are imprisoned, here's our plan of action. And perhaps we can just offer up a silent word of prayer next time that we sit in absolute convenience and ease and comfort in a climate-controlled building uh, with comfortable seats, and we worship the Lord God in that context. But that was not the experience of the New Testament church. But you might say, Times are changing for us. Because if you analyze the culture at any level in the Western world, uh, we note that there is a growing antagonism against the gospel and against the Christian church. A growing antagonism uh, that ultimately will not uh, be content until it has done all it can do to quiet the church. We are living in a post Christian and in a secular culture. And, and I believe that we do very, very well to recognize the reality of that experience and, and to know what we're up against, so to speak. Uh, that the world is not our friend when we consider ourselves as the Christian church. Yes, we have a message to bring to the nations, but more and more the nations perhaps will stand against that message. Therefore, Verse 4, a great persecution arose. Uh, but in the back of our minds, when, when we see, for example, the increasing secularization uh, in the Western world, and, and when we see the, the threats or maybe even the carrying out in our northern neighbors of, of civil litigation, of, of the claims of hate speech, uh, of the arresting of, of gospel ministers, but also when you read in Acts 8, now Saul was consenting to his death. Stephen lies there, respectfully speaking, dead in the ground as a result of the stones that were hurled to him as he preached the gospel. And as Saul goes from house to house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, we might think, well, where is Jesus Christ now? And we might even think that in regards to our own community. Where is Jesus Christ now when we hear of these things happening in our own communities? Uh, of an opposition against the principles of the Word of God. Well, when we look in Acts 8, 
where is Jesus Christ now? Well, thankfully, Acts 7 at the very end, Stephen helps us with that. If you look, and here we are just reminded of the sovereignty of the setting, Acts 7 Verse 56 and 57, Stephen says, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So where is Jesus Christ when the nations rage? Well, Psalm 2 echoes what Stephen says. Jesus Christ is on his throne. And Although our finite minds do not perfectly understand how all of these providences are woven together, the Lord is actually using this persecution to glorify Himself by advancing His gospel message. Because of this intense persecution coming upon the early church, it forces, you might say, the church to scatter. But they scatter with a purpose. And as we experience the antagonistic opposition of a secular world, it ought to motivate us to bring our message to say, you want us to be quiet? Your desire for us to be quiet will actually motivate us to speak. And if you won't let us speak here, then we'll go speak there. And if you continue to hunt us there, then we'll go somewhere else. But wherever we go, We will speak because we know that our sovereign king is on the throne. A congregation, and and I say this to myself more pointedly than anyone else because I know my own tendency towards a pessimistic spirit, but our responsibility, our duty is not just to bemoan the sad state of affairs and culture. It's not just to sit here on Sunday morning and Sunday night and say, wow, the world is terrible and it's getting worse. No, our calling, our task is to obey our King's commission and to be about His business in whatever our hands find to do that is lawful and legitimate, but in part to evangelize the nations. So the setting for the work of great persecution arose be forewarned that history does repeat itself, but do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged because we have an activity to engage in, and that we see in our second point. And again, we just simply look in at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word. Uh, Derek Thomas, a Reformed commentator who has written uh, a commentary on the book of Acts, uh, he describes this activity as every member evangelism. Every member evangelism. And again, you notice the the words of the text. Those who were scattered, they went preaching the word. Now, this is both a declarative activity and a comprehensive activity. Now, to be clear, and it is a bit technical, so so bear with me, the word used in verse 4 that is translated preaching is a word from which we get evangelizing. Now, you'll notice that Philip in verse 5 also goes and he preaches. Now, Philip had a temporary office, uh, a a special office in the church, and and the word translated in verse 5, preached, is a different word than verse 4. The word used for Philip is a more official declaration. The word used in verse 4, evangelizing, it just simply means to bring or to announce good news. 
uh, just to simply speak good news in an informal setting. And that's why it's such a, a beautiful word that the Holy Spirit has chosen for Acts 8 verse 4. These individuals, when they were forced out of the comforts of their Jerusalem dwelling places, they went to the surrounding communities, they entered into the villages and the cities, and they then simply declared the good news. Now let that sink in by way of contrast for a moment. Imagine that you are uprooted from your comfortable life here in Pala, and imagine because of the persecution that the local authorities and the religious leaders are bringing upon you, you are forced to pick up uh, your material belongings and to move to the next town, the next city, maybe even the next state, and you arrive there and you set up shop and you begin to converse with individuals as you make your new life, would you complain or would you speak good news? And when I ask that question, then I know why I need to hear this sermon. Because I would be tempted to complain. I don't know why I had to move. This is terrible. I don't know what's going on in the world. Things just aren't like they used to be. Remember back when we used to just be able to live our lives in comfort and in ease? The remarkable testimony of God's grace in the early church is that when they were forced to move by way of persecution, they resided in their new communities speaking good news. Well, what kind of good news? And when you ask that question, you see that the focus of the New Testament church, and the New Testament church wasn't perfect by any means. If you ever think the New Testament church was perfect, you can read through the Corinthian correspondence or the Galatian correspondence. But the apostolic church, by and large, was focused upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the good news that the early church brought. When they evangelized, when they talked with their new neighbors and their new co-workers, and when they conversed one with each other, they spoke about Jesus Christ and congregation. That is always good news. It's, it's always good news to say to your fellow co-worker, Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the eternal Son of God who in the fullness of time has taken our human nature unto Himself. And He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yes, there is a lot of bad news within the world. And it all hinges upon the realities of sin and the consequences of sin and the brokenness that is a result of sin, living life here under the sun. But there is always this good news, and there's always an opportunity to proclaim the good news. Whether it's Monday, whether it's Wednesday, whether it's Friday, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you never have to ask yourself, well, I, I wonder what I can say about Jesus Christ today. Say the same thing you said yesterday and the week before. The same thing that the early church said. And Philip himself, he illustrates, although he engages in a, a different type of a preaching, but you'll notice verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached, preached what? Self-help to the Samaritans? Social evolution? He preached Christ to them. Now, I need to limit myself because verse 5 is not the focus of our attention, but there's something remarkable that Christ was preached to the Samaritans. But for our purposes, it just illustrates that this is the focal point, and this is the declaration. And of course, the church 
in her formal preaching, needs to continually evaluate, are we hearing about Christ Jesus and Him alone, but also in our day-to-day evangelizing and in our communicating one with another? Is there this declaration about who Jesus Christ is and what He has done, the victory that He has accomplished? And it's a wonderful opportunity And of course, that's not the only opportunity, but as we go through these seasons, as you you have Christmas, and as you have uh, Good Friday and Easter, and as we come up into Ascension Day, and as we then go into Pentecost, these are wonderful stepping stones. And I assure you that if you seize these opportunities and talk to the co-workers and talk to the individuals in the supermarket, and when they say, well, blessed Easter, there's a window that's just open for you to say, yes, blessed Easter indeed, our Christ is risen from the dead. He has conquered death and he has conquered the grave. The question is whether or not we will seize those opportunities Yes, even here within our own communities. Just because the vast majority of persons commemorate Easter, don't assume they understand the significance of Easter. And don't assume even that they understand the significance of Good Friday. Speak to them about a substitutionary atoning sacrifice and of the imputation of guilt onto the Lord Jesus Christ, and the imputation of His righteousness into our account. And, 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 and say it with a smile on your face that even your body language might communicate, there is good news. And isn't this the message that flows all throughout the New Testament as well as the Old Testament? Think of the angels on the evening of the Incarnation good news. I don't know about you, but sometimes I tire of hearing bad news. Yet I'm still sometimes drawn, and, and not very often. Maybe I, maybe I should do this more. Maybe I should do it less. I'll turn on Fox News, and my lovely wife says, why do you even watch it? Turn that off. It's just depressing and discouraging. And, and it is. And I, I don't care what news outlet you I'm not making an argument for Fox News. It, it's It's discouraging because there's a whole lot of bad news. Well, ask yourself the question, who is going to bring good news to the nations? It's you and it's me. We are the ones who have good news no matter what the stock market is doing, no matter what international trade is doing, no matter what regime is on the rise, no matter what regime is on the decline no matter even what the gas prices are. Every single day of our existence, we have good news to declare to the nations. And it's a comprehensive activity. Uh, To quote uh, a late church historian, Kenneth uh, Latourette, he says, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women who carried it on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. No, it's a lengthy quote, so allow me to read it again. The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, 
professional clergy, if you allow that term, just for illustration's sake. But men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. And it's just simply a result of the amount of exposure. Now, I I try to get out and about somewhat, but my my calling also demands that hours are spent in in study. And, And we're thankful for the opportunity to preach the Word also through the means of radio and internet, but, but there's a limit to the exposure uh, that a minister can get to, to persons. And, and that's what Latourat is getting at, and that's what's so powerful about Acts 8, verse 4. It, it, it's simply the multiplication of exposure. They, they, that is, the believers, the rank-and-file believers, never ever to be looked down upon in the important value that they have, but they go out with greater number. And they go out and, and they begin to speak in their, in their shops and in their places of, of industry. And it, it's a remarkable thing if you really think about it. Imagine how many places of employment are impacted by our congregation. And imagine how many places of, of business are frequented by our congregation. Now, if our evangelism is going to be limited to what we do here on Sunday morning at 9.30 and Sunday morning at 6.30, we're we're going to have a a very limited scope and a very limited influence. But if we come here in in a sense on the Sabbath day to be spiritually recharged in order to go out there, and as we break up, so to speak, in our own individual organic lives, the one going to his place of employment, the other going to her place of employment— and, and, you know, and some maybe shop at Fairway, and some maybe shop at Hy-Vee, and maybe some go to some other grocery store that I'm not privy to. But you notice we, we then compound in an innumerable way the exposure of this good news. And I think we really need to wrestle with whether or not we are seizing the day of bringing about this declarative, comprehensive activity of testifying of the gospel. But notice in the third place, the focus in the work. Uh, if you're following along in the words of our text, there's, there's one little phrase, most powerful phrase in verse 4. They went everywhere preaching the Word. The Word. The explanation of the focus, first of all, negatively speaking, there is an ever-present danger to look to various programs, tricks, and novel inventions. Again, Derek Thomas helps us when he says, God's church is not dependent upon buildings and strategies and programs for its survival and growth, but rather people who are committed to the authority of the Word. So much time in the Western world, I believe, by the church is wasted by looking, analyzing dreaming up innovative new tricks and techniques, all the while the authority of the Word is undermined. These persons who went out scattered, they didn't have advanced training. They didn't have a 10-step success program for how to interact with your neighbor. Think of what they did have. They had Christ. 
and they had the word of Christ. Now, a little bit more by way of a positive explanation, the word of God is a common phrase used throughout the book of Acts. Just within a few pages, you can flip back. You'll, you'll see it, for example, in Acts 4, uh, verse 4. Uh, there the apostles are preaching, defending themselves before the priests, the captains, and the Sadducees. In verse 4, however, many of those who heard the word believed. Uh, And it runs like a golden thread all throughout the book of Acts, verse 31 of Acts 4. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Uh, You can look on the other side of our text in Acts 8, verse 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. And there's a parallelism there between the word and the gospel. Uh, Now, of course, in Acts 8 verse 4, the early church did not have the complete canon as we have it with 66 books of the Bible. Uh, So this phrase, the word, uh, describes, yes, the, the scriptural writings that they had in their possession, which would have included the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, but there was the, the word, the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, preserved by the apostolic instruction. And, and the early church, they went out, and in a spirit of prayer, but also in a spirit of bold confidence, A bold confidence, again, that just like the Apostle Paul was not based in and of themselves, but in the Word of God. Because think of it, how how am I, how are you, how are we going to march into a culture that is antagonistic against the gospel? And how are we going to respectfully face some of the brightest minds in our Western culture? Individuals who have more degrees than letters than I can even read. How are we going to confront them and how are we going to bring good news? with our belief in the authority of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, uh, he didn't march into Mars Hill thinking, I'm the best philosopher of the day. I'll outsmart these guys, no problem. But his soul was stirred within him out of a holy, reverent fear of God. And he had a certain confidence in the Word of God, that Word of God that speaks of the Word Jesus Christ. And I thought of this even as we, as we say the Apostles' Creed. And, and I trust that you agree with my sentiment uh, that those 12 sayings, I believe them with all of my being. Why? Because of the testimony of the Word of God. And even if the whole world of unbelieving philosophers and experts of our day would come with argument after argument, denying the miraculous incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, perhaps with a measure of fear and trembling, would say to them, you're wrong. The virgin did conceive underneath the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And now, yes, they would laugh, and they would scoff, and they would mock, and perhaps some would believe. And and our neighbors, perhaps, they will come with their arguments. And you young people, especially those of you who are going to be going off to higher education in the colleges and the universities, your professors will laugh, and they will mock and they will ridicule. 
They will mock and they will laugh and they will ridicule people such as myself who stand up and say that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they will laugh at your elders and catechism teachers who taught you so faithfully that Jesus Christ was incarnate. And they will laugh and they will mock your parents who brought you up in the Christian faith, including instruction in Christian morals. And they'll say, what is this barbaric, antiquated teachings? But if you have confidence in the Word of God, then you'll know every man is a liar. But God is true. And God's Word is truth. Now, of course, all of Scripture is inspired and given by inspiration, but in my experience, there are certain biblical texts that just grip your soul and hold on and will never let you go, and one of them is that proclamation of Jesus Christ. Sanctify them in John 17, verse 17, by your word. He's praying to his Father. And then he says, your word is truth. The New Testament apostolic church in Acts 8 believed that. I trust that we also believe that. And that's the explanation of the focus. Now, two implications, and then we'll wrap it up to a conclusion. If this is true, which you can search out Scripture, and you can find evidence that it is true, the Word of God is authoritative. Then the first implication is that a church that is committed to evangelism will also be a church that is committed to the study of the Word of God. If this here is the sword of the Spirit that we are to use in an apologetic battle to the fulfillment of what Peter says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give an answer. Part of the way in which we are ready to give an answer is to study the Word of God personally, also corporately, faithfully, in depth. To be an effective evangelist There has to be a recognition of the authority of the Word of God that produces a diligent study in the Word of God. But also then a confidence. A confidence to, to let the Word go. To let it go and, figuratively speaking, to step back and see what it accomplishes. As long as I have my senses... I don't think I'll ever forget a minister's conference that I went to. Back to the basics in an annual conference put on in connection with the ministry of Alistair Begg. I can still, maybe I still have it somewhere in the moving boxes, uh, the, the brochure or the, the, the pamphlet for the conference. And on the front were the most encouraging words. It, the price of the admission for the entire conference was worth it just to see these words printed on a ministerial retreats program. Trust the Word of God to do the work of God. And I say it was the most wonderful words because it's the most liberating concept. I can't change anyone's mind. You can't change anyone's mind. I can't change anyone's heart. You can't change anyone's heart. I can't convince the individual next to me on the assembly line that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you can't either. But the Word of God can. And the Word of God includes these promises. 
Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and they do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. And then just listen to this. It shall accomplish what I please. That it might, not hopefully it may, it shall accomplish what the Lord pleases, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent. So humbly as a church, we have a calling, not just as an institution, to bring the gospel over there to those people, but also to evangelize the good news, to be bearers of good news. And wouldn't it be wonderful if people in our own community said, oh, there comes a member of Covenant Reformed Church. I bet he or she is a bearer of good news. I, I, I dare say that sometime in the midst of this day or our interaction, at some point they'll somehow bring in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a wonderful testimony that would be of us as a, as a people. Oh, those covenant people, bearers of good news. Everyone else wants to bemoan the culture and the state of affairs in the world, but, but these people, uh, they go from place to place, from shop to shop, from interaction to interaction, and they talk about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And they always ground everything in their Bibles. They seem to be a Bible-loving people. Wouldn't it be a wonderful testimony if people said of us, you know, what settles it for them is the Word of God. If the Word of God says it, they believe it. And if they believe it, you can probably find it in the Word of God. Well, congregation, having been instructed in the line of Acts 8, verse 4, by the Spirit of God, may that be our testimony here in our own neighborhoods and in our own families and in our own homes that we are a people of the book who bring good news to our neighbors and to our co-workers concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that even in the midst of darkness, we are those who have received the light, the light of your Son, the light of your Word. Father, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we have been so overwhelmed with the bearing of bad news, uh, the times that we have uh, sat in our own uh, circles, so to speak, of despondency and just simply complained. Uh, Father, change us where we need changing. Uh, give us an understanding of the good news of salvation and of Jesus Christ, and then give us a humble boldness and a, a confidence, not in our own abilities to articulate these things so well, but a confidence in the Word of God. Even if we can do nothing more than stammer a few texts, may we do that, letting the Word run knowing that it will accomplish that purpose for which you sent it forth, because it is your word. And so we ask that you would hear our prayer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.